worship God, had a chance to sing to him and to sing to Jesus. Thank you, John, for leading us in that. We've had a chance to commune with him and to share that communion with each other as he pulls us together. Maury, thank you for leading us in that. And now we get a chance to open God's word and to allow God to teach us and to hear from him. And in that, we all get to participate and hear uh, what God has to, to share with us through his word. And our passage today is going to be from John chapter 20. So if you'd like to take a Bible and find first the book of John, uh, that gospel of John is one of the first four books in what's called the New Testament. And so as you uh, look through your Bible, you'll start with the Old Testament, but about two-thirds of the way through, you transition to the New Testament, and there will be four books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, what you're looking for is the fourth of those, called John. And in John, turn to John chapter 20. And there's one verse I want you to see there today, and we'll circle around that verse. We'll talk about the whole book of John, but we'll circle around that verse. We're in the middle of a series called When Jesus Asks, Who Do You Say That I Am? This comes from a question that Jesus asked the disciples. You'll remember that they had gone up to that northern part of Israel. Jesus pulls around those first people who were following him, those very first disciples, and he asked them. He says, uh, who, do, uh, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, people have different opinions. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am. And do you remember Peter's answer? This was the first in our series asking this question. We listened to Peter, and Peter looked at him and answered, you are the Messiah. Remember, the word Messiah means the anointed one that God would send into the world to make everything right again. And Peter pegged him and said, that's who you are. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And remember, the son of God was a term used for the emperor or the leader, the one who had control over all reality. And so Peter basically is saying, you are the one who was to come into the world and make things right again. You alone have the sovereign power over all reality. And that was Peter's answer. And Jesus says, that's a good answer. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Nobody told you this, but it was revealed by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, remember, upon this confession, I will build my church. And you are a part of that church. Remember, the word church means assembly. Assembly means that a group of people have been called by somebody, and you are part of that group who are called together by Jesus. You are part of this church, and this assembly, this calling together, is based on a confession, on admitting to something, on a firm conviction that Jesus is the Christ, this Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. And upon that confession, Jesus says, I will build my assembly, I will pull together my church, and the gates of Hades, which could mean many different things, but primarily means that the the gates of death will not be able to stay closed against my church. It would be about life that lasts forever. That was Peter's answer. The week after that, last week, we talked about Martha's answer. 
And we asked Martha, who do you say that Jesus is? And you remember there in John chapter 11, where Martha's brother, Lazarus, had died. And Jesus, after Lazarus had died, went to visit them, basically showed up for the funeral. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, you understand your brother will live again. And Martha says, I know, I know in the resurrection at the last day. He will come to life. And then Martha, you remember, takes her by the shoulder, so to speak, and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he looks at Martha and says, do you believe this? And do you remember Martha's answer? Ask Martha, who is Jesus? And she gives her answer, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Do you start to see the theme? She gives the very same answer that Peter. She came to the same conclusion that Peter had come to. And today we turn to the next of our witnesses and ask the Apostle John, uh, who do you say that Jesus is? And I bet you can guess his answer. Uh, But before we get there, let me tell you a little bit about John. Of all the disciples, John is, is unique in several ways. John was most likely the youngest of all those chosen by Jesus to follow him. So he was the youngest of the apostles. Uh, started following Jesus probably in his 20s. He had an older brother named James. They were both fishermen, sons of Zebedee. And Jesus picked both of them, along with some other fishermen that were there in northern Israel. They, they, they caught fish on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus picked them to be fishers of men. And John was the youngest of all of these. But he was selected by Jesus and became one of Jesus' closest, most beloved disciples. He was part of the inner circle. And John was there. He got to see some of the most amazing things that Jesus did. Some of the things that the other disciples didn't even get to see. John was there when Jesus raised a little girl, you know, from the dead. Uh, John got to be there at the transfiguration. John, of all the disciples, do you know who was standing right there when Jesus died on the cross? That day, when he died for your sins, the rest of the disciples had scattered. The only people standing there was a group of women who had followed Jesus and one of those apostles, and it was John. The young man standing right there at the foot of the cross. And Jesus gave him one of the greatest responsibilities of his entire life. When Jesus looked down from the cross and said to John, John, that woman next to you, that's, that's my mother, Mary. She is now your mother. And mother, this is your son. He gave John the responsibility of taking care of his own mother, Mary. What, a, what an incredible responsibility. Now, tradition has it that John would end up leaving Jerusalem. Uh, he would end up moving with Mary over and live most of his life probably in Ephesus. And there he would have known Paul. He would have known Timothy, some of the other people that you meet there in the New Testament. Uh, at some point... He made the local officials upset, and he was sent into exile on an island of Patmos. But while he was in Ephesus, while he was on Patmos, he wrote up to four different books that were preserved. Now, at the end of your New Testament, you'll read some letters, very personal letters, that John wrote. That's uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, but those are actually letters that he wrote to people. And then he wrote the longer book, the uh, book that can be confusing to read, but is powerful, uh, called Revelation, which talks about... The coming of God and God making things right again. It kind of reminds me when I was in junior high, I had a teacher who had a group of junior high kids, you know, sitting there trying, and, and he said, what do you want to study next? And we said, let's study Revelation. <laughs> and he backed out of that one. Yeah, he, 
He said, he said, let me tell you what Revelation is about. Revelation tells you who wins. Now you guys go read it yourself. <laughs> that was his recommendation. Revelation is hard to read, but it's a powerful book. And when you understand who John is, when you understand what he saw, you, you begin to see what our teacher said. It tells you who wins. Well, those are the other books that John wrote. But the one that we're looking at today was the Gospel of John. And so John, uh, when he was older, ends up writing this description of all the things that he saw, or most of the things that he saw that Jesus had done. But here's the point I wanted you to see. And that is when John wrote this book that we're going to look at, the Gospel of John, he was no longer that young man who first followed Jesus. He's no longer that young man who reclined at the table with Jesus. He's no longer that young man who first started taking care of Mary. By the time he wrote this book, he's much older, maybe in his 60s or, uh, or, or even close to 70 at the time that he writes this. John, by the way, also ends up being the oldest of all the disciples, the one who dies of a natural death, probably in his 90s. He lived to be a, 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 to an old age in the 90s, probably died around 100 A.D., and keep that date in mind. That's about the time. But he's writing this letter around the 60s uh, A.D., and there's a copy of that on the screen. You see that little fragment? Do you know this little fragment that you see on the screen is the oldest copy we have of the New Testament? And it comes from the Gospel of John. John chapter 18. In fact, those of you that can read Greek, you can see the Greek letters there. You're all learning Greek letters now because of the different COVID variants, right? And so you'll be able to see some of the Greek letters there. Uh, the word in the middle is the word aletheia. It means truth. This is from John 18, where Jesus is talking to Pilate about those on the side of truth, hear me, follow me. And Pilate says, what is truth? And they, you see a copy of that. This is a copy from about 150 AD. So it's within one generation away from John actually writing this down. Somebody thought this book of John was so important that they made copies. And that those copies, other copies were made, and they made their way across the known world at the time. And, and you see a copy of that here. John wrote this book, this Gospel of John, for one purpose. And here is the purpose in John 20. Now, normally, it's not good to give away the end of the story <laughs> uh, at the beginning. But you almost have to go to the end of the book to see the purpose that John wrote this Gospel and the reason that it was passed on to you. And that reason is in John chapter 20, verse 30. And this is where John, after telling you everything that Jesus had done, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning this book of John, this gospel of John. He said, Jesus did many other things. I don't have time to tell you about everything that I saw. But these, verse 31, are written so that you may believe, catch this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so there's John's answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, I wrote a book to show you who I think he is, but notice John doesn't stop there. I wrote this book so that you could become convinced of the very same thing that Peter the conclusion Peter had come to, that you had come to the same conclusion that Martha had come to, that you could know with conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Well, let me give you a little bit of an overview, because when when John wrote this book, my hope is that you don't just key in on one verse and then stop there and walk away and say, I've read John. 
you realize that's unfair. The, the reason John wrote the gospel is so that you would pick up that book and that you would start with the very first page, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... That you start there and you go all the way to the end, chapter 21. It's meant to be read, start to finish, all the way through. But when you get to the end, what you find as you turn that last page is that all that you have read is only a first taste the whole Gospel of John is is built much like a trailer for a movie. Do you ever do that? Get on, get on uh, TV at nighttime. And say, yeah, what are we going to watch tonight? You know, and you flip through the different options on the movies with Netflix or Hulu or Apple TV or whatever you use in your house. And and each of the shows now, you know, it has a trailer, so you can decide: do I do I really want to watch this movie or not? Do I want to pay the two ninety nine you know to rent the movie? Well, I'm going to watch the trailer first. So you watch the trailer. And the trailer of the movie gives you a snapshot, little scenes from the whole movie. So by the time you get to the end of the trailer, you know what the movie's about, and you can decide, is this something I want to sign up for or not? That's the same way you feel when you get to the end of this Gospel of John, is what you've been given is the trailer to something much bigger, in which John has given you these scenes, one after another, so you get a pretty good idea of what you're signing up for. But you get to the end of the book, and you realize, ah, This is something I want to sign up for, and you click in. So let me give you a a brief overview of John. What's in this trailer of the book of John? Well, the first thing that John does is point out some of the unbelievable claims that Jesus makes, and then he's going to pair these. Jesus says things that are unbelievable, and then he does things that are undeniable, and he puts these two things side by side. And as you go through, we don't have time to hit each one of these verses, but as you read through the book of John, you're going to run into these unbelievable claims that are either made about Jesus or that Jesus himself makes. One of those claims comes early in chapter 1, that the world was made through him. Did you know that? That Jesus, it was through him that everything was made. And without him, nothing was made that is in existence. The claim is that Jesus is the Messiah that he is the one, the anointed one that is to come, who will make everything right again, that dead people will be raised. And then Jesus makes these claims about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am doing the works of my father. And he claims that his father is God, making him the son of God. He claims that I am the resurrection and the life, which you heard him say to Martha. He claims that I am the way, the truth, the life, those exclusive claims about being the only one to the Father. And then he claims, as we read this morning in Bible class, that I have overcome the world. And that's just a snapshot. There are plenty of more unbelievable claims, but I give you those just to show you. These are the unbelievable claims that you read in John. And then John pairs those with these undeniable works. So he, he, he gives you what is unbelievable, and then he shows you what is undeniable. And he shows you the list of these amazing things that Jesus does, things that John saw him do. So you're reading here not the description of some Bible teacher who's telling you what Jesus did many years ago, seen by somebody else. When you're reading through John, you are reading the eyewitness, that young man who was standing there that day and saw these things happen. He was at the wedding and saw the water turn to wine. He saw Jesus heal a boy who was near death. He saw Jesus as he healed the paralyzed man. In chapter 6, he sees Jesus feeding 
5,000 men with the women and children in addition to that. He sees them, feed them all with the loaves and fish. He sees Jesus walk on water and saw Peter do the same thing uh, when he walks out to him. He saw the blind man's sight restored in chapter 9. And then John was there with Martha, with Mary, with the others, when he saw Lazarus being raised from the dead. And then John was there not only at the death of Jesus. John's the one who can tell you with confidence he didn't stay dead. Do you know who the first person to the tomb was when Jesus was raised? It was a group of women who were taking care of Jesus and the body. And they'd gone back to mourn at the, at the tomb. And when he wasn't there, they ran back and told the disciples. And then there was a foot race between John and Peter. Now, they'll both say they got there first. But John records for all time, so that you know, he actually got there first. Now, Peter actually ran into the tomb. So Peter will say, I went into the tomb first. But John makes sure it's clear. He was the younger, the faster (laughs) one who got there first. There's a funny line that he puts in the end uh, of this book. But John was there. He saw the empty tomb. He was back in the room that night when Jesus appeared to all of them. John was an eyewitness to all of these things. I'm getting a little carried away with that, but just to show you that there are many more things in this book than even what he records. But these are some, just for you to see, that as you read through, start to finish the book of John, you run into these unbelievable claims, and then they're followed up by these undeniable uh, works. Well, if you're any modern person, you'll say, wait a minute, those are just, those are just miracles. You're asking me to suspend belief for a moment in order to believe in miracles. So I want to pause for a minute and make sure we clarify what do we mean when we say that a miracle has occurred. Because John's going to give you many things. He's not going to call them a miracle. But he's going to give you many things that Jesus did that are amazing. But it's important not to be blinded by what is in essence a filter from the Enlightenment and thereafter that prevents you from seeing what's really going on with each of these amazing works that Jesus did. So what is a miracle? When you say that Jesus performed a miracle or you hear that a miracle is performed, what comes to mind? There are three basic ways or definitions of the word miracle, ways that we use that term. The first is when we use the term miracle, we're talking about an unusual or a mysterious event that is thought to have been caused by a God because it does not follow the usual laws of nature. So this is is true throughout history, that when people talked about a miracle, they're usually referring to something that you can't explain through scientific inquiry, that this is something that falls outside the laws of physics or the laws of nature. In the first century, that might be a description of how spring comes each year. Right now, we're in the middle of winter because the goddess is mourning and has gone into mourning and will mourn until spring when suddenly she will arise again because her daughter has come back to her from the underworld. And, and, and in her joy, spring comes back to life. And so that would be the description. And it's miraculous. You know, spring is miraculous because of something you can't explain uh, by science. And some people put Jesus' miracles into this category and say, well, you can't explain this stuff by scientific inquiry, so therefore it is a miracle. The second way that we use miracles is by just uh, saying that something was a very lucky event that was surprising and unexpected, possibly beneficial. You know, I was I was late for church this morning uh, because I forgot something. I went back in the house, came back, you know, to the car, and I was on my way here. And do you know, uh, somebody sped right through a red light in front of me, and I would have been hit, except for those extra few seconds, because it was it was a miracle that I, you know, got to church today because of this or that that happened. And so we'll use that term miracle 
not really because we're saying there was some intervention by God, but because it was a fortuitous event and we were lucky that it happened. And the third way we use miracle is to describe something that is an excellent achievement in a particular area or activity. Uh, you hear this a lot in those of you that enjoy sports. At the end of a game, when in the last second your team wins, and they'll say, it was a miracle win. You know, it was a miracle pass. It was a miracle score at the end. And we just mean, okay, it was unexpected. It was amazing. Somebody did what they're supposed to do, and they did it well. We're going to call it, you know, a miracle. Those are the filters that you have whenever you hear the word miracle. Now I'm here this morning to say that any of those definitions would have made no sense to John. That's not how he uses the term when he tells you what Jesus did. Because what Jesus did, what John saw Jesus do, does not fit into any of these categories. Let me see if I can show you why. There are two major, what we call miraculous mistakes, when we use our modern-day filter and try to lay it down over a first-century document. The first is that we believe that miracles back then were believed so easily because the ancient people uh, were ignorant of modern science. And and we say, you know, if you brought somebody from the ancient world to today and you stood them here in Anchorage and watched the fighter jets, you know, doing their touch and goes out here on Elmendorf and they saw one of those birds coming down over, they would be amazed and they'd say, this is the power of the gods because they are ignorant of modern science. And so they would immediately assign something to being miraculous or whatever. That's a miraculous mistake. And I'll show you that in just a minute. The second miraculous mistake is that miracles, we believe, are a violation of the laws of nature or laws of science. And what I want to show you is that when you read these miracles in John, that's not true. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. On the first point there, that the people back then were so gullible, basically, they would believe any miracle because it you know, they didn't understand the laws of science or the laws of physics. Let me just show you a few of the scientists from this period of time. Notice the date, 60 AD. About the, the same time that John is writing this book, there was a scientist named Hero in Alexandria, where they had the great uh, library, who was inventing the same steam engine. Do you know that the, the reason those jets work when they're flying overhead is because of a law of thermodynamics that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. You shoot a bursting force out the back of the jet and the jet's going to go forward. And you say, wow, that's, you know, that's modern science. That's certainly modern technology. But don't call it modern science. That science was actually being worked out at the same time John was writing this book. This is what's called Hero's Engine. Uh, Hero, you can look it up online. It's actually fun to watch the the replicas of this, like on YouTube, where he figured out using plumbing and uh, thermodynamics and the the uh, the laws we now know of fluid dynamics and pressure. And he built a system where if you heated water underneath, it would force this heated air into the upper orb, and then it would shoot air out one of these plumbed tubes in the back and force this ball to rotate faster and faster and faster. This was the first steam engine that we know of. And that first steam engine was invented in 60 AD. I'll get carried away describing these, so <laughs> give me the signal to go on, but these things are fun to go back and look at. Uh, another example, Ptolemy. You've probably heard of Ptolemy, the mathematician, geographer, uh, and astronomer. Again, writing AD 100, about the time John dies, uh, he is starting to do his work, observing. And, the, and Ptolemy is one of those who's trying to figure out whether or not all the planets and stars orbit the Earth or whether the Earth is orbiting something else. 
Everybody then said that everything, because it's clear, you look up in the sky, everything orbits the earth. It's geocentric. And Ptolemy was trying to figure out how could that be when sometimes the moon is smaller and sometimes it's bigger and sometimes it gets in front of the sun and how far would the sun have to be away for the moon to perfectly cover the sun during an eclipse. And so he's using all kinds of math to do that. Now this is translated on the screen there into English so you can see some of the math that he's doing. And those of you in high school, geometry and trigonometry, some of you even in the college versions of those are going to recognize what he's doing. I, I for one, have trouble even now trying to sort this out. He's doing higher level math. Now calculus had not been discovered yet. So he's using trigonometry and even angular trigonometry, applying it to orbits. And then on the right there you see his actual notes. This was Ptolemy. At the same time, John is writing this in the very same language of Koine Greek. He's writing out how the planets move and figuring that out using higher level math. He had no access, just to be clear, to the Internet to be able to see what actually circles what. All he had was observations taken every night over and over again over many, many years, and then having to work out the math of how things moved. That was in 100 A.D. Go back a few years before John was writing this, and uh, the Antikythera mechanism was being built. Now, this is the first analog computer. So even before Jesus was born on this earth, uh, we had computers. This is an analog computer that was built somewhere in Greece. We don't know exactly who built it, but this thing is amazing. Thirty-some-odd uh, bronze gears that all work together. This is long before the modern clocks, you know, were invented. And they figured out a way to put together this computer so you could dial in where the planets were today and predict where they would be four years from now at the next Olympics or where you could predict the next eclipse, or where you could use it for dating and for planning. And it was a it was a basic computer. The only reason we know this exists is because it was being shipped to Rome for a celebration of the new emperor, Julius Caesar. And it was on a ship. Somebody had ordered it on Amazon, but because of shipping problems they had back then, uh, the ship sunk. They ran into a a storm or something, and it and it sunk along with all these other treasures they had ordered for Julius Caesar, and uh, and it was discovered in around 1900. They found this shipwreck. It went down, and they pulled it up, and they found this encrusted rock-looking thing. And now, using you know CT scanning, they're able to look at each of the layers and read what was going on. And you can still go to Athens and see this very first computer. Again, I'm getting carried away, but I wanted you to see that this is in 80 BC. What I'm trying to do is to help you get out of your mind this idea that the people back then were so ignorant of the modern laws of science that they would accept anything. That's absolutely not true. If you were to ask John, why do you believe that these things occurred, he would not say that you have to suspend belief in order to accept these things. He would say quite the opposite. The reason we believe these things happened is because we know how the world works. And that's why we believe what we saw. In fact, John never uses the word miracle the way you would use the word miracle. The word miracle uh, in Scripture is usually a translation of one of uh, three or four terms. Usually the term is something like power or work or a sign. John will use that term. But they don't describe it as some fanciful event. They describe it as a show of power. So get out of your mind that they accepted these things simply because they did not believe 
the way the world, or were suspending their belief of the way the world worked. They believed these things because they knew how the world worked, and the only way for that to happen would be that someone had mastery over the laws of nature. And so that brings us back to this list of all of these things that Jesus does in the book of John. Turns water to wine, heals the boy near death, he heals the paralyzed man, he feeds 5,000, he walks on water, he restores the sight of the man born blind, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then in the end, Jesus himself is resurrected from the dead. If you look at this through John's understanding of what was going on, you see not a suspension of the laws of nature, you see mastery over the laws of nature. Every one of these miraculous events that you read in John share one common characteristic, and that is that they can only be performed by someone who knows how the world works and knows how to have mastery or has mastery over all the laws of creation and all the elements of creation. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you by just pulling one of those events out. We don't have time to go through every single event, but they all follow this same pattern. They all have this same characteristic. In John chapter 6, you learn about how Jesus ends up feeding 5,000 It says men. We assume there are women and children, too. could have been 15,000 people who are gathered around the Sea of Galilee, uh, and they've come to hear Jesus teach. But they're very far from home. This is quite a distance from where most of them would have come. And so Jesus turns to the disciples and says, how are we going to feed all these people? And we're told in John he was testing them. You know, he said, where are you going to go buy food for these people? And Philip says, you know, it'd take a year's wages. You couldn't even give everybody a tiny bite. And then Andrew comes along and says, well, we got a boy here. He has five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, it'll be enough. And he takes those five barley loaves and those fish. And with those, John almost breezes past this. He just says, Jesus feeds everyone. And he not only feeds everyone, there was so much left over that they collect up 12 basketfuls afterwards. And that's how Jesus feeds them. And then John goes past that. And we learn how Jesus is the bread of life and what it means to to seek him. Well, what's the characteristic that you see in this miracle? It'd be tempting to look at this from our modern perspective and say, no one can do that. He had to somehow suspend the laws of physics or the laws of science in order to do this. But from John's perspective, something else is going on. If over Thanksgiving, you had seen someone just walk into your kitchen And without using a recipe book, if they had just walked into your kitchen and grabbed a bowl out of the shelf and put it on the counter and thrown in some flour, poured in some water, a little bit of yeast and some salt, mixed it, kneaded it, let it sit there in a baking pan, threw it in the oven, and then a few hours later you get that nice smell of freshly baked bread and they put it out on the counter there for you. There are two things you could know about that person if they came in and did that without referring to any recipe book. There are two things you could know. First is, I think this person knows the recipe for making bread. And the second thing you would know is it looks to me like this person has done this before. That's exactly the point that you're meant to get when you read this event in John. Is that someone who has come on the scene, someone has come on the scene who knows the recipe and has likely done this before. And you see this is true. Do you know where we get barley loaves? You make barley bread from barley. And where do you get barley? Well, every grain of barley comes from a barley 
stalk looks a lot like wheat, grows in a big field, and every one of those stalks comes from one seed that was planted. And where did that seed that was planted come from? Well, it came from previous stalks of barley, which were themselves on other stalks, from other huge fields. And every one of those seeds in every huge field fell from stalks that had come before. And if you did genetic testing on any one of these little barley grains that were used that day when Jesus made the bread, do you realize you could trace the genetic uh, trail all the way back to the very first barley seeds that were planted on the third day of creation? In other words, do you know how God has been feeding the world from the beginning of time? It's by taking barley and making more barley. By taking wheat and making more wheat. The same is true of the fish. How do you make fish? Well, not to get into too many details, but you have to have two fish. You have a male fish and a female fish, and the female fish lays the eggs, and then the male fish spawns and, you know, and fertilizes the eggs, and then you get more fish. So every fish comes from two previous fish. And every one of those previous fish themselves came from two previous fish. And if you did the genetic testing, you could trace the trail all the way back to the very first fish that appeared on the fifth day of creation. In other words, how has God been feeding the world from the beginning of time? It's by taking fish and from those fish making more fish. Now that's what John wants you to see in the feeding of the 5,000 is that someone has come upon the scene, has pitched his tent among us, and he seems to know the recipe for how to feed the world. And it looks like he's done this before. And when you look at the list of all of the things that that Jesus had done, or that he lists there in the book of John, you see they all share this characteristic. Whoever, Whoever changes water to wine must know the recipe, and they must have done this process before. Whoever it is that allows and can give a paralyzed person the ability to walk must have given human beings the ability to walk from the beginning and taught them how to do that. Whoever it is that can heal a man born blind must know the recipe for everything that goes into sight and be able to do that again. Whoever is able to give life to someone who appears dead must know the recipe for life and must have done that before. That's the point of the book of John, is that as you go through, you begin to see that Jesus is not just some fanciful magic worker who has showed up on the scene. It is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has entered into this world and has mastery over all that he has created. And that's what brings us back to John 20 and that verse that we read earlier on. When John says, now Jesus did many other, and notice the word he uses, Some of your Bibles may translate that miracles. The actual word is signs, simply an indicator of who you're dealing with. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you catch the theme? This is what Peter Concluded. This is what Martha concluded, and now John says, this is what I concluded. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But notice how he presents it. John doesn't just say, that's my conclusion. He says, I wrote these things down, so this could be your conviction as well, so that you could know. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. And that's where John becomes just the movie trailer. You get to the end and you realize when you turn the last page of the book of John, you have not turned the last page of the story. Because the story of the book of John is only being written now in you. What do you do with this? When you come to a firm conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, what happens in your life? What happens in your marriage? When in your home you come to understand, to know, to the firm conviction that Jesus is the one who has come to make things right again and he alone has mastery over all things in the universe. What happens to your what happens to your parenting? What happens to you as a parent when Jesus comes into your life as the master over all things? What happens to you as a child in your relationship and in your family when you come to the firm conviction that Jesus is really in charge of everything? What happens to you as students when you go back to school this week and you realize that what you're studying is not just some subject to get a grade so that let me pass to the next grade, but rather you're getting to look and study the recipe that that God has left for us to study and look at. C.S. Lewis one time said that to, to see a miracle is to see God writing in little letters what he normally writes with big letters all over his creation, sometimes so big you can't understand it. But what, what's that like to go to school and to be able to see the letters with which God has written the recipe of all creation? What happens to you in your business when you recognize who it is that provides your daily bread and you come to the firm conviction that Jesus is the one who's making the world right again? What part do you play in that? Well, you see the point. When you get to the end of the book of John, you don't get to the end of the story. The end of the story is what happens in your life when you come to the firm conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's where we end things today, with that thought. An encouragement not to take this sermon as an understanding of the book of John, but rather as the trailer (laughs) that I hope you will click and say, I want to go read that whole book. And when you do, start, if you can, get through the whole thing in one sitting. Take you a couple hours or certainly in one week, but don't stop. Read it start to finish and see where it it takes you. And then my hope for each of you, whether that you are new to this and deciding whether or not you will follow Christ or whether you're on the other end and have followed him for years, just like John had, my hope is that when you sit down with the book of John, that you will hear what John says when he hands you Jesus and says, now I'm going to leave the two of you together and watch what happens. I give this to you, John says, so that you may have life in his name. Well, if we can pray for you, help you in that regard, uh, this is a good time to come and share that with the congregation. If you need to do so in private, I hope that you'll seek out one of the elders uh, here uh, after service to pray with you uh, in your search. If you have questions about this, I hope that you will pursue those and ask those who know and who have followed Jesus for some time. Uh, With all that, I hope that each of you will honor God's word by continuing to think about it as we stand now and sing. I
dare not trust him, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my 